Please stand as you're able for the reading from God's Word. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. He said to him, when he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God, not for God. For God, all things are possible. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last year, I'm in a medical practice and I meet with some guys regularly. And about a year ago from now, some guys uh, heard me going on and on about the practice of medicine and changes I thought I wanted to make and just kept going on and on about that. And one of my wiser friends uh, suggested that I take some time off and do a mini sabbatical and maybe getting along with God, getting alone with God, getting along with myself would allow me to reflect on my practice. So I said, oh, yeah, whatever. So I signed up for some time off and finally that time came and I packed my bags and, and went uh, a lot of it alone. And looking back on my life, looking back on my practice, uh, faith journey, um, spending time doing things I hadn't done in a while, like journaling, reading, praying, I found myself really uh, reconnecting with God in ways that I really had, had not in quite some time. And honestly, looking at my life, all that supposedly had worked to achieve the practice of medicine, how much effort I had put into accomplishing. And what I found in that was a thread for me of self-serving focus and really a reluctance to surrender a lot of those things to Christ. And I found him kind of calling me on that. that pause has caused me to begin to look at people and the relationships I have and the practice I have and 
even the way I looked at patients and my staff in a totally different way, in a way uh, where I see ministry really all around me. And the question is really, am I willing, am I in touch with God enough to see uh, what He's doing and realizing that He's really calling us, calling me to just be in relationship with Him. And as I am doing that more, the rest of those things, what you do, the service you get involved with, the way you care about people comes out of that relationship, not out of the doing, not out of the accomplishing, not out of the stuff that you achieve. It's not what more can I do for God. It's, it's, it's how can I know Him better and be with other people that want to know Him better and in that sense grow in community. And, and that then leads to, to, I find, to a desire to care and love other people better. Good morning. So grateful that you all had the good wisdom not to leave for fall break. Uh, it's been much less congested this weekend, and we're grateful that you're here, and especially those of you who are visiting with us today. It's great to see you. Uh, one of our visitors is Russ Davis, who is on the organ bench today. And Russ, we're so grateful to you for your sharing your gift with us. Uh, Greg Bunn and the boys are, are with Mickey Mouse, I think, in Orlando, Florida. And so uh, we wish them well. We're grateful for Russ. Uh, many of you through the morning have asked, would it be possible for us to put a little ticker tape of the Titans game underneath the PowerPoint? And I considered that, and the answer is no. Uh, <laughs> although most, some of you may already know what's happened. I don't know whether you do or not. But we're grateful that you're here. And what a day. What a beautiful day to be among the fellowship of the saints. Uh, I so appreciate Dr. Steve Johnson and his witness. He, I don't know if all of you know Steve, but Steve and Trudy and their family are members here, and they've been with us about four or five years. And Steve's mother and dad are also a part of our church. Uh, Steve's witness, so authentic, uh, which is also coupled with the reading that Merrill read for us from Mark, just ushers us this morning into this new fall series that we're choosing to call The Art of of sharing. It is sequentially coming intentionally after the series on human purpose, the book of Genesis, because once you have discovered your reason for being, once you've discovered God's purpose for your life, it is absolutely imperative that we begin to live it out in the context of community and in the context of the mission of the church, not, not for self-satisfaction, not for self-fulfillment, but for others, particularly the needy, those in need to the glory of God. And it's obvious when you hang around Steve Johnson that he's in a season now in his life where he's living it out, not accidentally, but he's living it out intentionally. And discipleship is an intentional discipline for the person who follows Jesus. The text from Mark chapter 10, however, is an example of another young man who is missing the boat. It's fascinating to me that this story, the story of the rich young ruler, is found in all three synoptic gospels, all three similar gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's a story that begins with tremendous promise and ends in deep, deep grief. The text begins, as other stories often do, in verse 17 by saying Jesus was on the way. 
Since Mark chapter 8, Jesus has begun to make clear the destination of his journey on the way where. He's going to Jerusalem. He specified this no no less than two times prior to this story in chapter 8 and verse 9, and he does so again immediately after the text that we have read. He repeats a third time that the way of the Christ is the way of the cross. And likewise, for those of us who follow Jesus, the path of discipleship always leads to a cross. That, That cross metaphor has meaning for us. It simply means that all of us are on the way to some voluntary act of shared suffering, of shared generosity and sacrifice. And on the way to Golgotha, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus encounters this man who has everything. I mean everything. He's a man for all seasons. He is a man of means. He is a man of money who has possession, power, prestige, status. The Scripture doesn't say so, but he was likely voted most likely to succeed in his high school class. He's who's who in in colleges and universities. And I think he's even got a Brentwood address. Now, it's odd that a man of his status, a man of his stature, would approach this penniless prophet who has no place to lay his head. That strikes me as rather strange. And I want you to notice his approach, how he comes. He comes running to Jesus. Men of means don't run. Rich women don't run. They have help. They have servants who do their running for them. And so rich folk don't run to or from anyone or anything. I remember in the 70s, there used to be a commercial that said, don't ever let them see you sweat. Well, in the first century, it was don't ever let them see you run. But this guy's in a hurry for some reason. There's a sense of urgency about him. Furthermore, notice he not only comes running, but did you notice he comes kneeling? He's doing obeisance to this teacher, which signifies the fact that he must be religious. He's a pious man. He's a man of faith. He may even be president of the synagogue, or he may be president of the church council. He is a son of Abraham. It's also interesting to me that in Mark's gospel as a whole, whenever you see someone running to Jesus and falling before Jesus, they're always asking for healing. And so with all this running and all this kneeling, it is indicative to Mark of the fact that the man who has everything is missing something. And so he comes to Jesus with a question. It's a good question, good teacher. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting how Jesus deflects the address, being called good teacher. He deflects the address because with Jesus, flattery won't get you anywhere. With me, it'll get you somewhere, but with Jesus, it doesn't get you anywhere. Why do you call me good? He says, for God alone is good. Good teacher, what must I do? Notice the emphasis is on I to inherit eternal life. 
Now, that's a peculiar question because you don't really have to do anything, do you, to gain an inheritance? Well, somebody has to do something. Somebody has to die for someone to receive an inheritance, but we don't have to do anything. It's not about our initiative. It's not about our action. It's not about our ingenuity. It's a gift. In fact, to make sure that we understand this, notice the location of this story. The context of this story is it happens right after that scene. You remember where parents were bringing their babies to Jesus for a blessing, and the disciples wrongfully thought that these children were a nuisance to Jesus, an interruption to his busy schedule. And so the disciples try to shoo those kids away, and, and Jesus, I love the way the Scripture says it, gets indignant which is a nice southern way of saying he was ticked off. And he looks at his friends and he says, don't hold them back. L let these little ones come unto me, for to such belongs the kingdom. And whoever does not, here comes the word, receive the kingdom as a little child, you'll never get in. I think sometimes the most difficult thing for a person in the 21st century to do, particularly where we live, is to receive. We like to do it the old-fashioned way. We want to earn it. But salvation, eternal life, it's a gift. And so for me, I see that the question is flawed to begin with. What must I do to inherit? By the way, this guy knows about inheritance in fact, he is a rich, young ruler, which means he couldn't have made all this money in the short time he was on earth. He's inherited his wealth, and he's likely the firstborn male in his household, which means because of the birthright thing in Judaism that he gets double share of the inheritance when daddy dies. So in other words, what Mark is saying is this guy's the privileged one. This guy's the entitled one. He is the E.F. Hutton of the group. So that when he speaks, you better listen. When he says boo, people jump. When he makes a motion at the church council meeting, second, everybody seconds, motion carried. His wish is their command. But eternal life is not an entitlement. It's not something to be earned. It's a gift. You receive it. I saw an interesting cartoon the other day with a doctor. She had her stethoscope, and she was examining a young, brash patient, and she offered her diagnosis by saying to this young, brash patient, you have what we call an irrational sense of entitlement. It won't kill you, she said, but it will cause you to believe that you deserve everything for nothing. And I thought of myself <laughs> and this ruler. What's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't argue with the question. He answers the question. He, he takes it at face value, and he responds like any rabbi would have in the first century by pointing this man to the Scripture. He points him to the Torah to the Decalogue. He says to him, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. Don't diss your parents. And what's interesting to me, if you notice all those commandments, they come 
out of the second table of the Ten Commandments, all of which have to do with our relationship with our neighbor, with each other. And what's interesting also is these are all the don'ts. You must not do this if you are to follow Jesus. And apparently this guy at least thinks that he's squeaky clean. In fact, he's even a little cocky about it. He says, oh, I've taken care of all of that. He said, I've kept all those commandments since I was in MYF as a boy. And don't misunderstand, the don'ts, they're pretty important, aren't they? In our Wesleyan heritage, we often talk about three rules. You know the three rules, do no harm. That starts with don't. Do good, stay in love with God. And so what's interesting is this guy is still at the elementary stage of faith. In other words, he's efficient about the don'ts. There are some churches that all they talk about is the don'ts. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Don't, don't. Everything is thou shalt not. And that's important. That's the beginning. And this guy's efficient in the don't do's, but he's deficient in the do's. It's interesting to me that in Jesus' apocalyptic vision of the end time, Matthew 25, he seems to indicate that our eternal destiny may come down to one question, what did you do unto the least of these, my sisters and brothers? I was hungry, you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was a stranger and you had room at the inn. I was sick and you cared. I was imprisoned and you visited. The gospel is not just about avoiding bad, it's about doing good. This man has missed that somewhere. And then comes my favorite verse. I, I think the whole, the whole scene turns on verse 20. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. There's tons of grace in that line. Because when others saw this rich man, they saw what he could do for them. They, they loved his stuff. They loved his possessions, his position, even more than he himself did. But when Jesus saw him, he saw more than his wealth. He saw beneath the facade. He saw beneath the surface. And he loved him. He loved him. Amy Hollingsworth has written a book about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, which is called The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers. There's a documentary that just came out. Have you seen it? Won't you be my neighbor? You must see it. It is, it is a must-see today, particularly when it comes to neighborly civility. Did you know that Mr. Rogers was called to be a minister? He was a Presbyterian minister who went to seminary, was ordained. His sons said after his death, Dad hated television, absolutely hated it, especially children's television, because it was all about bang and hitting and shooting and all of that. And, and they said, Dad hated children's television because in order to be a hero, everybody had to wear a cape. And he wanted children to know that you didn't have to wear a cape to be a hero. You could be yourself. Amy Hollingsworth wrote a book about Mr. Rogers, and she asked him an interesting question towards the latter part of his life. 
She said, Fred, if you had one final broadcast, if you had one last opportunity to address your television neighbors, what would you say to them? And Mr. Rogers thought to himself for a moment and said, well, I would want those who were listening to know that they have unique value, that there isn't anybody in the whole world exactly like them, never has been, never will be, and that they are loved by the one who made them in his own image and redeemed them by his own sacrifice. If they could know that, he said, really know it, and have that behind their eyes, then they could look with those eyes on their neighbor and realize that my neighbor has unique value too, that there's never been anybody in the whole world like my neighbor, and there never will be. If he said they could do that, if they could love like that in the same way that the eternal one loves us, then that would be enough for my last show. We live in an uncivil age where we often assess people according to our political perspective, according to our theological precept, according to our economic status, according to our race, according to our ethnicity, nationality, class, gender, and all the rest. But when Jesus looks at us, he sees beneath all of that. He doesn't look at you with a jaundiced, judgmental eye. He looks at you with a deep compassion, and he loves you, and he loves me. I have a friend who worships with us. He comes to 815, and nearly every week, he comes up to me, and he says the same thing. He doesn't say, hello, good morning, drop dead. He doesn't say any of that. He comes and says the same thing every week. Has anybody told you today that God loves you? And I say, no. <laughs> well, he does. And off he goes. His name also happens to be Mark. And I told him this morning, I never get tired of hearing you say that. And he said, well, you're not the only one I say it to. I said, I should hope not. He said, well, while you never tire of hearing it, I never tire of saying it. What a man. You know, there are many ways to say it, but really what happens here at this desk every week is that we stand before one another and we say with assurance, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And Jesus loved this rich man so much that he loved him enough to tell him the truth. What must I do? You lack one thing, he said. Go and sell what you own, share the proceeds with the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now, clergy are terrible about trying to tone this down, and I'm not going to do it. But one of the things this means to me is that discipleship doesn't mean adding things to your life. Sometimes it means subtracting. 
Following Jesus is not just about self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, self-emptying. We've got enough of that consumerism in our religion. It's about self-emptying. It's not about shoring up. It's about sharing our lives. One of the most joyful days in these past few weeks that we've experienced as a community was on Saturday two weeks ago when the whole church got together to make these meals for folks who were hungry. 100,000 meals were made in the gym that day. There was music and dancing. Interesting, there was dancing. Uh, Good thing the Baptists were not with us. Uh, The Baptists danced too, but they're not supposed to enjoy it. And so here we were, music and dancing and children of all ages working together with these beautiful red hairnets that some of us were wearing sharing together to make sure that the hungry were fed. And after it was all over, the morning session, this little girl comes up to me, she's about eight, and she says, Pastor, can we do this every Saturday? (laughs) And I thought, that's really what it's all about. The response of this rich young ruler is one of the most haunting parts of the story. When he heard Jesus' command... His face fell. He was shocked. And he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Get this at the beginning of the story, he was running to Jesus. Now, when he understands discipleship, he's running from Jesus. The man who had almost everything walked away from the one thing that mattered more than anything. And he just walked. And this is so Jesus. Jesus sees the whole scene as a teaching moment. And he gathers his disciples and said, I got to tell you, you're not going to like it. It's awfully hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. In fact, he said it is actually easier, here comes the hyperbole, for a camel to go right through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And verse 26 says, they were shocked. The disciples were just dumbfounded because in their theology, to be rich was to be blessed. And we still do it now. We pass beautiful home with the gates. Boy, they must be blessed. And it can be that. But in the disciples' mindset, in the theology of their day, prosperity was a certain sign of God's favor. And to these disciples, this guy was the poster boy for piety. And they ask, then, Lord, Who can be saved? If not, who can be saved? And Jesus said, he quotes right out of Genesis. We talked about it three weeks ago. This is a direct quote from Abram and Sarah. Well, for humans, it's impossible, but with God. Anybody that can create out of nothing all that is, anybody that can raise a dead man from the grave, that's impossible for you, but with God, all things are possible And then Peter gets worried because he's been counting the cost of everything he gave up. And he says to Jesus, look, teacher, we've given up a lot to follow you. 
In other words, he's saying, what's in it for us? And Jesus responds by saying, there's nobody who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or children or fields for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, talking about fellowship and fields. And then he adds this line, with persecutions, Boy, that'll thin the ranks, won't it? Because Jesus will not hide the fine print of discipleship. He knows he's on his way to Jerusalem, to Golgotha, where a cross awaits. And he doesn't want us to be naive about this. It can be costly to follow Jesus. But the last line says, and in the age to come, eternal life. You know what that means? You can't outgive God. When you measure the cost, the blessing always outweighs my little sacrifice. With us, impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. And the last word. I hate the ending of this story. It's always troubled me. And then I read one day that tradition holds that this is not really the end of the story, that many believe this rich young ruler is actually the author of the first gospel. We call him John Mark. And though he walked away initially, he came back. He got a second shot. He got a mulligan, and he surrendered his life. He sold out to Jesus and eventually would become Simon Peter's secretary and traveling companion so that he could write down the good news of Jesus who loves you and me. Because once you have tasted of God's love in Christ, you are forever spoiled to any lesser pursuit. And John Mark would say, kind of like Paul said, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the don'ts, the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the do's based on faith. John Mark was the rich young ruler. He finally did give what he couldn't keep in order to gain what he couldn't lose. The unsurpassable worth of Christ and giving himself for the good of others. That's the art of sharing. This is our mission. This is our call. May it be so in our lives.
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.